From Liberty Cast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to the Defenders of Capitalism podcast. This is the only podcast who is really committed to talking about advocating for the only socioeconomic system that is moral, based on the true human nature, and advocating for individual rights, the proper role of government. And I have a very special defender of capitalism here in the studio with us. Actually, he's probably better known in some of our circles as the defenders of the Declaration, as if that, <laughs> as if there's a difference, right? Right, as if there's a difference. <laughs> That's a great point. But I want to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Thomas Cranowitter, into the studio here. Thanks for being here, Tom. We've been talking about actually having you join my podcast for a little bit now, and uh, I'm glad you can make it today. Well, it, it, thank you for having me, Mike. I mean, the great thing is you and I have been talking. We've been talking in rooms with each other, and we've been talking to each other and having discussions for the better part of 20 years. Yeah, it's amazing. Sort of thinking these things through and... You know, it's it's just been a great it's been a great exercise. It's been a great experience, and uh, I'm happy to have this opportunity to sit down and talk into a microphone with you. For those of you who don't know him, and, and, and probably uh, most of the people who are listening to us do, but uh, let's talk about your background a little bit of intro, Tom. You know, you're you're a historian, you're a constitutional scholar, you're an author. You're a teacher. You're an entertainer. You're you're an entrepreneur. This is one of the things I admire you the most about you. You know, you're you're actually a risk taking entrepreneur, much different than most academics I know. Well, I I always like to point out also, Mike, I'm a recovering academic. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm you sure. don't want to be thrown in with that crowd. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um, as I mentioned, you you do have an academic background, and people should know yeah. that you have a lot of credentials. You were at Hillsdale. You were at Claremont. You were mm -hmm. you, you taught at a number of different universities. Uh, and as I said, you're an author, you're, you've written, I don't know, five or five or 10 books. Um, uh, you're a Lincoln scholar. In fact, we should touch on that a little bit. I mean, um, that's, that's the first book I ever read of yours. I think I may have told you this before. Um, you know, Lincoln, like every schoolboy, every person who grows up in America, people admire Lincoln, rightly so. But, uh, after college, I started reading, more kind of libertarian literature and finding out about, uh, and I read this book called The Real Lincoln. Yeah, by Tom DiLorenzo. Tom DiLorenzo, and it's got this, it, you know, for people who are familiar with political commercials today, the, you know, they had the black and white, you know, ominous sounding commercial or black and white uh, video. Well, DiLorenzo puts, you know, really crappy picture of Lincoln <laughs> on the book, black and white, making him look like the devil. Um, and it, but it was compelling. There, there's some, there's some parts to that story of Abraham Lincoln and you know, his role during the Civil War and his expansion of the federal government that I found somewhat compelling. I was like, wow, maybe maybe Lincoln's not such a great guy after all. Yeah. And and then along came your book called Vindicating Lincoln. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it was this actually um, you know, specifically designed to answer DiLorenzo or was it uh, aimed at a broader broader audience than that uh you know it well, was a popular book. The, the, the title the inspiration from the title um my book was meant to be a kind of sequel not sequel is the wrong word an accompany uh, volume to tom west's book vindicating the founders uh tom was a colleague of mine he, he used to teach at the university of dallas and he was a senior fellow at the claremont institute and he published this book, Vindicating the Founders, where he took up each chapter was sort of a, 
one of the leading charges, you know, we're the founders racist, we're the founders misogynistic and hate women and right, all, all these sort of things. And I love that model of addressing these leading accusations against the founders. So I thought, well, if, if he did that for the founders, I'll do it for Lincoln. He wrote Vindicating the Founders, I'll write Vindicating Lincoln. And uh, what I quickly discovered, in fact, I, I mentioned this, um, when you dig into that whole realm of Lincoln and the Civil War and related subjects, there are over, well, 15 years ago, there were over 17,000 books on these topics. Just to give you a perspective of what that means, that is more books than have been written about Socrates, Jesus, and Shakespeare combined. <laughs> wow. It is a mountain of, of literature. And what it means in practice is no one can get their mind around all of that, right? It's impossible. So somebody's always going to come up and say, did you read this book, this title, right? And it's like, no, that's one of the 17,000 I, I didn't, <laughs> didn't get to. Get Sorry, to. <laughs> right? It's impossible. So I'm always discouraging students, you know, stay, stay away from Lincoln and the Civil War because the, the lit review is, is just terrible. But also within that huge realm of scholarship and research, the fastest growing scholarship on Lincoln was coming from libertarian sort of, you know, free market oriented economics based. Now, would you say that, Tom, would you say that in, in name only free market only? I mean, I've come to think of those folks, you know, quote unquote libertarians, especially the ones who, who've attacked Lincoln in that way, not, not necessarily free market, but more, more uh, specifically an identity of anti-government period, you know, that, that, that they were like, okay, Lincoln is the one who started really expanding the federal state and right. they blame him and they don't think they don't look at you know the rest of uh u.s history before or after him they vilify him and, and but it's also they're not actually offering anything positive in the way of saying okay here's what lincoln did or here's what the proper role of government is they're just anti-government i i think you're right about that and and to be clear here i want to make sure our our listeners get this includes some very high-level influential people. Um, what, one, one of the folks I, I quote and I address at some length is Walter Williams. Walter Williams is a prominent, you know, free market economist uh, who, who, I suppose, I don't know how much of this is a part of it, but he also happens to have dark black skin. And so uh, it kind of made him a celebrity in certain conservative and libertarian type circles, he used to uh, he used to guest host on Rush Limbaugh's show whenever Rush would have a day off. Walter would come in, and and, and he's a he is a tremendous economist. Um, he is. Yeah. I've read much of his research when it comes to social policy and demonstrating the harmful effects and all the unintended consequences that come from various kinds of of collectivist social policies. He's really good. He also called Abraham Lincoln the greatest tyrant in the last 200 years. And, and so, I mean, think of what that means. He's including, he's comparing Lincoln to Stalin and Pol Pot and Hitler and Mao. Maybe and, a bit of an overstatement. And, and he's saying Lincoln was worse than all of them. And and he's just, there's a, there's a whole group of those types. And I think you you put your finger on something important. Some of the thinkers who run in those circles they tend to anarchism. Um, some will openly call themselves sure. anarchists, anarcho-capitalists, and, and and 
you know, I think this is important for, especially for listeners who haven't sat with us and really explored all these ideas and, and their conclusions. You know, what one can, these anarchists we're talking about, they're, they're not unintelligent. They're not unlearned minds. They're, they're smart people. They're well-read people. Uh, and they really are just anti-government. And what, what they don't do is spend any kind of time talking about the legitimate purpose of government, the legitimate foundation. What can make a government legitimate? What is it supposed to do? They just look at everything government does and point out all the harmful effects, all the bad consequences and things like this. And, and, and so Lincoln is sort of an easy target. And the reason they hate Lincoln, they say Lincoln was step one. The first step toward the big progressive government that even people like Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, you know, a generation or two later, they couldn't have done what they did if it wasn't for Lincoln centralizing the Union through the course of the Civil War. So I interrupted my introduction of you just to go down that path on, on the book, on that yeah. book. But as I said, you know, you, you're an author of a number of different books. I just had a quick sweep of your background, but you tell us more about your, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, you and I've talked a little bit about this, but I know you grew up in Kansas. Mm -hmm. um, how, did, Kansas. how did you become interested? <laughs> I mean, you're <laughs> rural Kansas, yeah. farm boy. How did you get interested in, in these ideas, in fundamental ideas, yeah. and take them so seriously and, and make it your life's work? Uh, uh, tell us you know, a little bit of, uh, of your background from growing up in Kansas to being now uh, the kind of entrepreneurial uh, intellectual that you are. Well, I give great credit to one of my teachers. Sometimes I will joke. I, I went to a small state university there in my hometown, Fort Hay State University. And the joke I make is I had one teacher, meaning I had, I experienced one professor who was serious about great books, great ideas. Uh, he and I became great friends. He wasn't that much older than I was as a student. He was not he was not one of the types of intellectuals. He was not writing books that was shaping entire disciplines. He wasn't that guy. What he was was a tremendous classroom teacher. This guy loved to teach. Um, and we became very good friends to the point like Friday afternoons, there was a little pub right across the street from his office. Now we were probably violating all kinds of laws and regulations and who knows what. <laughs> but we would go sit down and drink beer for two, three hours, and we'd have open, whether we were reading Plato or Marx or whatever it was, and we'd be drinking beer on a Friday afternoon and and hammering through and debating these these passages, you getting know. Getting after when, it, yeah. Getting after it, you know. When, when Socrates calls for strict censorship of all music and all literature, is he being... Is he being literal? Does he really mean this? Or is he making a joke? Is he trying to say, this is this is ridiculous. This is what you would have to do to try to achieve perfect justice. And we're having those kinds of discussions and debates. And um, I come from a, a, a family. My dad my dad ran a full old-fashioned full-service gas station, uh, the kind where, you know, we cleaned their windows and had a, had a big tube vacuum cleaner. We'd vacuum out people's floorboards and things like this no academic background at all. So as I got close to graduating, I really had no idea what I wanted to do, what I should do with, with this exception. I wanted to keep reading great books, the great books and the great minds, because this teacher of mine, his name was uh, Paul Bozinski. Paul 
opened my eyes to this opportunity that there's this great conversation now spanning thousands of years about the fundamental human questions. And I can anyone can engage in that. You can jump right in there and you can see these arguments Aristotle makes and you can see how Machiavelli pushes back and wants to reject certain premises. And you see more modern thinkers coming along like Rousseau and later and, and want to redefine what human nature is. And, and you can participate in that conversation. So I went to him and said, what should I do? And he explained to me what graduate, I didn't really know what graduate school was. <laughs> graduate school? I, I didn't really understand. I mean, I had professors who had PhDs, but I had never paused, like look into what does that really mean? What does the PhD signify? And he pointed me to Claremont, California. He said, uh, there are two thinkers out there. Uh, one is, in, in, in my opinion, he is the greatest defender of the natural law principles of the American founding. His name's Harry Jaffa. And there's another thinker out there. His name is also Harry, Harry Newman, who is the greatest teacher of Nietzsche. And, and what's really fascinating is these two are friends with each other. They would often co-teach uh, graduate courses together. Sometimes they would they, 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 they would give it the name natural law or nihilism, or sometimes it'd be Socrates versus Nietzsche, these sort of things. But they would both be in the classroom and they would teach together. And Paul said, I, I can't imagine a, a richer intellectual experience than to go out there. It will basically be like studying with Socrates and with Nietzsche. And so I headed out, I applied, I got accepted, headed out to Southern California and went and pursued my my PhD. So that's sort of the, you know, the... <laughs> The impetus for, for all this. That is thing. fantastic. And you know, that, that story of Paul Bazinski, is that? Bazinski, yeah. You know, that, that's how teachers should be, right? I mean, that's how. And it's obvious when I'm watching you in a classroom or, or a public uh, forum, you know, I've had the opportunity to see you with, you know, groups of 10 all the way up to, you know, 500 or more. And it's amazing to me the kind of energy you bring to the discussion and, and, that whole idea of saying, okay, I mean, in, in the case that you're talking about really fundamental ideas, you know, the, the great books, but any teacher um, has to bring that, you know, has to bring that kind of passion. And, and that's oftentimes what's missing both in, you know, primary education and then, and then certainly in, in the college. There was, this, there was this moment in one of his classes, he was teaching a, a gen ed class. So this is a class everybody had to take, which meant a lot of people didn't really want to be there. And... <laughs> there were these three football players who would always sit off to the side and they would always screw around all the time. They're passing notes to each other and joking. And he had told them to cut this out probably a dozen times. So we're in class one day and they're over there doing their typical uh, uh, orneriness. And Paul's at the front. He was reading from a book and he, and he gradually works his way over to the side of the room where they are. And he, and he closes his book and there was an, there was an empty desk right next to these guys. And he stood there, stone silent, motionless for probably 30 seconds. And then he kicks that desk and it went flying across the room. <laughs> and he looked at those three guys and he said, get, get the F out of my class and don't ever come back. And, and the, one, the one guy, they all sort of slunk down their chairs. And one guy was like, what are we supposed to? He said, I don't care. I don't care what you do. I've asked you a dozen times to cut this out. So get out of my class. And I remember watching this happen, thinking, 
this is one of the most brilliant teaching moments I've ever seen. And sure enough, the rest of the semester was fantastic. Everyone showed up on time. <laughs> Everyone was engaged, you know. I mean, it, it ended up being a great class. And I thought that's the power of a, of a teacher who has some energy and some interest rather than just standing there with, you know, note cards and doing some sort of routine, you know, recital of facts. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't I don't know how much I want to go down this path because there's so many paths I want to go down with you, Tom. But uh, you're a student of, you and I have talked about this. You, you're not only a student of your topics, your content, but you're a student of the delivery. And and you've, ta- you've touched on before, you know, your admiration for entertainers like Robin mm-hmm. Williams before. Absolutely. Talk about, talk about that. I mean, you're, you're actually a student of like, how am I going to, you know, order and deliver this so that someone is is moved by it, you know, one way or the other. Right. (laughs) Get get their attention. Uh, This is, this has been, so one of my challenges here, I I, I went out to Claremont and these, I did in fact study with Harry Joffin, and Harry Newman. Both of them were on my doctoral dissertation uh, committee and both of them were boring as wet paper bags. They were not. Was that a big disappointment? Buzinski had (laughs) built them up like, okay, you're going to have Socrates and Nietzsche. A little bit. Yes. I mean, the real value, the real learning opportunity with them is if you, if you were willing to go to their office and you could sit with them for an hour or two or three and dig into these discussions and the texts and have these great conversations. But in terms of their presentation, they, there was just not much happening. And um, as Professor Jaffa got older, uh, he was connected to this group I was working with, the Claremont Institute. And they basically hired me to be his escort. He was an old dawdling man. He'd get lost in the airport and things like this. So I would travel with him uh, for his speaking events. And he spoke all over the place, all over the country, uh, universities and different venues. And Mike, I watched this happen over and over. Professor Jaffa would stand on a stage and he would give a presentation. And in the course of it, he would weave together Plato and Lincoln, and Shakespeare, and Da Vinci, and write all these great minds, and great books, and, and history, and theology, and science, and at the end, he would walk off the stage congratulating himself. Oh, what, a, what a brilliant presentation he just gave, and it was brilliant, and then I would hear the people walk out the back of the room saying, I have no idea what that guy was talking about, but, but he sure seems like a smart fellow. Yeah. And that registered with me. A, a light bulb went off. I was like, he, he, he is brilliant, but he's not... It's not bringing it home. He's not bringing it home. He's not communicating. They're not getting it. Yeah. And so I set out for myself uh, two great challenges. One, I want to break things down, distill things as far as I can, as far as my mind can break them down and offer the basic ideas, the basic concepts to others. And I want to do it in a way that attracts their interests, that gets them paying attention. So I started paying attention to people who are great in front of rooms full of people. Um, I started watching comedians, comedians who have really shaped their craft. They can just stand there with a microphone, nothing else, no, no, no PowerPoint, no maps, no visual aids, just a microphone. And the best of them can hold a large audience's attention for Two hours, three hours, it's amazing. Uh, I started learning things like the power of silence. Just pausing for three, four, five seconds in front, right? That alone can get the attention of people. Um, 
uh, moving around physically a little bit, squatting down, jumping up, uh, making a loud noise, doing things, telling a joke when they're not going to expect a joke, or or telling a really hard, ugly, sad story when they're not expecting that either. If you can take an audience on a little bit of an emotional roller coaster, little up, little down, it becomes a memorable experience for them. And I think it helps them remember those basic core ideas that I'm trying to get across. You know, it's fascinating that you bring that up, that that uh, that comedians, good comedians are masters at that, uh, at at the technique. But they're also, it, it, it's interesting because I, I had a professor, a philosophy professor in school who said the only philosophers left are professional comedians. <laughs> So he was making yeah. the comment that not only are they good in terms of that technique, but they're the only ones who examine, you know, fundamental ideas in, in a in a humorous way. They're, right. they're they're the only ones who think about well, what are we doing here? What what's going on here? And I, they I, make people right. think about it. I, I I totally agree with that. The the best of them, um, they're not. I mean, number one, they need to know. They need to be worldly. They need to know what's going on in the world today. But even more than that, right? They have to be able to think through and, and analyze and offer some kind of intelligent commentary on what's going on in the world today, which means they have to be able to think well, they have to have some kind of foundation by which to judge what's going on in the, in the world today. So they tend to be really bright minds who are very well educated, very sharp, very quick thinkers. So who's your favorite comedian, Tom? I would have you. I would have to say Robin Williams. Yeah. So, what about who, who's your favorite comedian? Do you do you go to stand up today? Do you go? Not very often. Not no. Pretty I, tough I don't. because you know Robin Williams sort of set a standard that it's tough. I mean, that, there are some really great comedians out there, you know, uh, but it's pretty difficult to find someone of that caliber of talent, you know, uh, across the board. And then you know, there's another part of you were asking me about my background, and I don't talk about this much often. Uh, so. I'm going through graduate school. I start um, I start teaching. Uh, first school I ever taught at was a little private liberal arts college in Southern California called Azusa Pacific. And, and I, I have a story about Azusa if we if we have time to get to it. Um, I'm finishing up my PhD, but I'm also working at that time at the Claremont Institute. Um, some of our listeners will likely be interested in, the, in that connection. The fellow who was the president of the Claremont Institute back then, his, his name is Larry Arn, and some of our listeners will recognize that he's now the president of Hillsdale College, and I was there at Claremont when he transitioned from Claremont to Hillsdale. And both at my, my time in, in Claremont, and then I eventually went out and taught for several years at Hillsdale, in both cases, I had one foot in the academic world. I was teaching, researching, doing all those academic things, but I also had another foot in the fundraising world. So I was going out with the development teams and meeting with donors, and I was helping to write uh, grant proposals and, and things like this. And, you know, it, 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 the truth is, for, for the most part, it's a certain class of people. It's a certain kind of people who give donations to charitable organizations. They tend to be productive people. They tend to be successful. If they're not successful, then they're probably not writing out checks and giving it to to other organizations. And so there I am and in, in this academic realm, right? I'm, I'm trying to figure out the nuances of the Lincoln-Douglas debates and the Federalist Papers and the differences between Aristotle and Plato, right? And all these great grand questions. But I'm also having breakfasts and lunches and dinners 
with these successful business guys. And it ignited a, a, a fire in me. I, I wanted to own something. I wanted to own something that can become valuable and, and decide what I want to do. That If I want to offer that for sale or, or keep it or, or whatever. I, I wanted to be entrepreneurial in the way that they were. And I think those years of raising money and spending a lot of time with successful business people really gave me a taste for that way of life. And and not just the way of life, a deep now, when you admiration. say that way, way of life, or you mean the productive way of life? The or productive the consum- way of life. The consumptive, you wanted to consume more and have, have more well, material wealth as part, well. In part, I mean, I, I, look, I look at these academics. They don't earn much money. They live in dumpy houses and drive dumpy cars. <laughs> and then I go meet with the, the donors, right? And they show up. They live a little differently. It's a little different. <laughs> so that, that certainly is part of it. But the most important thing is a profound respect I came to have for their willingness to accept risk. Um, most ordinary academics, they get their degrees, they get a teaching job, they get tenured. There's not much risk in their life. They, they, they also, there's not much reward. They might get little raises here and there, but things pretty much stay the same. What I quickly discovered about these business people, even very successful ones, had not only failed, they had often failed spectacularly, like completely hit bottom and it nearly broke them and broke their life in, in every, not just financially, but emotionally, spiritually. I, I, I mean, it was, and yet they would come back and they would try again, they would try, they'd have an idea and they would give this a try. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching Americans, I'm watching my fellow citizens complain about their jobs, complain about their bosses, the business owners, as if the business owner is their enemy, as if the business owner is some terrible, selfish, right, greedy person who, who wants to hurt his own employees, however possible. That's the way many people talk about their boss or the business owner. And what I realize is what very few employees have any appreciation for is the fact that that business owner, maybe he's successful now, but there was a time earlier where he was pacing the floor at three o'clock in the morning with ulcers eating through his stomach because he did not know how he's going to make payroll the next day. And he's maxing out his credit cards and borrowing money from his parents and brother and sister, right? Doing to desperately try to make this business go. And that's a kind of risk. I, I don't, know that many Americans today, the, the fact is most Americans work for somebody else and they let somebody else take that risk. And if you work for somebody else, say you get paid every two weeks, the biggest risk you really have, you might work two weeks and not get your paycheck. That could happen, in which case you would probably quit that job and go find something else. But m- most people don't know what that's like to put everything on the line, put your own house on the line and everything you've tried to save up to, to help your own kids, put it on the line, risk it knowing you might lose it. And in fact, many of them do lose it. And I just came to admire that. And, and, and all of a sudden it made sense to me. Okay, I see why the people who get rewarded the most, the people who earn the most, who are really successful, they also risk the most. There's a correlation between those two things. Real investment. Real investment of, of everything. Really investing yourself. Yep. 
And uh, I made a choice a long time ago. I want to do that too. You know, that's, and it's interesting. You started off with this, this discussion by saying you wanted to own things. You want to own something. And, and that whole issue of ownership is huge. It's, it, you and I've talked about this a bunch. Um, the culture has changed a lot. It still is, and there still is an American culture in, in the sense of saying, I want to have some more risk. I, I want to own things. I want the American dream. I want to have a better life. I want to have a better life for myself and my kids. Um, but that is waning right now. And it's partly because this whole issue of people not understanding the roots of prosperity, the roots of wealth, the roots of, of uh, what makes a good and virtuous society, not just prosperous in the, in the material sense, but, but prosperous in every way possible. Yep. And you and I talk about this all the time, both, you know, we've talked about it amongst each other, but we, this is something we, uh, we teach in our, in our leadership program. But I'm curious, you know, we jumped ahead a little bit about your story and I kind of want to go to today because you're, you're, you are, you know, definitely uh, taking some risk and, and, and showing entrepreneurship. And I wanted to ask you about this project. You just, I don't know that much about it, but you, you just, you were doing a show in Nashville and I wanted to find out more about how that went and, and, uh, um, what your evaluation of that risk was, and, and yeah, I put yeah, I I agreed to be on on a on a big stage. Uh, I mean, I've been on lots of kind of smaller stages, meaning smaller rooms with you know maybe fifty people or seventy five or hundred people. Um, but we uh, we so so my business is called the Vino and Veritas Society. It's a it's a society. It's a social club. People join it. They get they get. Uh, part of what they get for their membership, they get an online library of materials, um, educational materials, but they also get a social experience. Our members will form chapters and these chapters meet and socialize. And that's why we call it Vino and Veritas, you know, wine and truth. The wine represents socializing, hanging out, having a drink, having meals together, really getting to know each other. Um, and then Veritas, of course, is truth. We're, we're injecting the ideas of really the true ideas about what human beings are and what's good for them. And part of the inspiration behind the Vino and Veritas Society is that, remember that famous last line in the Declaration of Independence, the signers make this tremendous pledge. They pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And, and the pledge is interesting because they don't pledge it, they don't pledge it to God, they don't pledge it to all their fellow countrymen. They pledge it to each other. There's there's three dozen guys here in we, a room. Here we are. And here, here we, we are now. Here we, yeah. They're all looking at each other, right? They're just a few feet from each other. And I'm sure there's social distancing, at least six feet. But they're looking at each other and they're thinking, "Good man, if I sign this and I get caught, I'm dead. The British are going to kill me. And, and of course, they're going to burn my house down and treat my family horribly. So I, I think I'm in if you're in, right? Are, are you in, Mike? I think I'm in if you're in. <laughs> so they're, they're saying to each other, we, we put all this on the line. And sometimes civilization itself, the, the very prospect of freedom requires that kind of devotion, that kind of risk. And people who don't know each other are not likely to make that kind of pledge to each other. Those guys knew each other. And that's why I wanted to create not just an organization that presents the true ideas of freedom, but that there's a, there's a social element. I think genuine liberty-loving 
patriotic citizens in the best sense of that word, they're too isolated. They're too alone. They, they need to get to know each other. They need to spend some time drinking wine, drinking beer, drinking scotch, whatever it well, is, and, and socializing. Especially, uh, my, my observation is, especially when you have uh, people who are more one way or the other. Because there are people who are like, you know, I'm not that social. They wouldn't maybe even admit it, but they're, they're just behavior-wise and, and temperament-wise, they're, they're, they want to read the great books. They want to read, they want to listen to what you have to say. Right. But they're maybe awkward, maybe nerdy. I don't know. But then you have the other people who are like, I'm about the vino, Tom. <laughs> yes. And they want that social experience. Yeah. And then they, they get engaged with these guys who are, who are talking about ideas. Mm-hmm. And the guys who are talking about ideas are like, hey, I'm kind of cool here. <laughs> you know? And yeah. they, they talk to each other and they engage. And like you said, you, you've got a social experience going on that's not just social and not just intellectual, but both. Um, and, and it's interesting that you bring that up in the context of the founders. I mean, that's so frustrating to me that we have this society that doesn't know that pledge yeah. of the declaration. They don't know it. They don't understand what happened there. And they don't know the, the, the I mean, the, the fate of lots of those guys who signed. Yeah. yeah we talk about Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He's the guy who wrote the, the declaration and he went on to have, you know, lots of successes as a president and a, and a statesman and so forth. But there were a lot, what are there, 56 signers of the mm-hmm. declaration? Mm-hmm. And a lot of them lost everything. Everything. In, some of them, including their lives. Yeah. Had their, their homes, their farms burned to the ground. Uh, you know, th- 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 there's that old uh, Mel Gibson movie. Um, Talking about Patriot? Yeah, Patriot. Yeah, yeah. And there, it's, it, it's based on a, on a real guy who was in South Carolina. And there's some fictionalization. There's some, you know creative liberties there but the way they portray the british um was not entirely false the british were cruel and they were a professional army their goal was to stamp out this revolt as quickly as possible and the way you do that is you hurt people you hurt them you make them suffer so that they say okay we're and you destroy we're, their stuff and yeah and break their spirit and break their will and burn their homes down and and that was going on and so when, when those guys stood there and made that, that important pledge to each other, they, they really meant it, and everything was on the line. So that's sort of the, the spirit behind the Vino and Veritas Society. And this summer, uh, we, t- we took a gamble. We took a risk. We, uh, we teamed up with sort of a, a big-name political celebrity, Dr. Ben Carson, who until a few years ago was most famous for being a, a neurosurgeon. He had, I mean, he's he's not just a surgeon. Like, this guy is a pioneer in his field. He he did the first successful, um, there's a technical name, and I don't remember what it's called, but twins at birth who were conjoined at the head. He separated them, and, and they survived. He had another case where it was twins separated, and there was some kind of some kind of terrible deformation while they were still in the womb and he performed surgery on them and they were both born alive and healthy and went on to leave. It's it's fascinating. So this is, this is Ben Carson. And then of course he, he ran uh, for the president of the United States. Um, Didn't make it through the primary in 2016, Uh, but he certainly has been involved. And then, uh, when Donald Trump got elected, Trump appointed him as 
uh, nominated him for secretary of um, uh, secretary of uh, not, housing I mean, and urban or housing and urban. I was going to say health and human services. Maybe Housing. You're right. Maybe I'm no, right. I think you're right. Uh, 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 HUD. Yes. yes. Housing and urban development. So we teamed up with him and co-sponsored an event in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was uh, one of the most trying experiences I've had professionally. One is, so we had a, we were on a big stage in a big professional venue. We had a packed house, which was a great thing. And both teams were really concerned about having this schedule and they wanted to stay right on the schedule. And the whole schedule hinged on Ben Carson speaking first and his plane got delayed. Oh my God. He, he was supposed to fly that afternoon from Florida up to Tennessee and a huge thunderstorm had grounded all the flights. And so when it gets time to go, he's, he's not no even there. And we don't know when he's going to arrive. And so I just started. Just some tap dancing, <laughs> tap dancing by, by the famous Dr. Y- yes. <laughs> and I really didn't know, like, should I talk for an hour? Should I talk for two hours? Uh, it was. Did he end up showing up? He did end up showing up. Um, he got up and, and gave a great presentation. Uh, we had people buying regular tickets and some people bought some more expensive tickets so that they could get some private time mm-hmm. with us afterwards. We did like a little private Q and a afterwards and it was great. It was, overall it was a, it was a great event, but that, you know, we're talking about risk. I mean, that's one of those things. We put up lots of money. They put up lots of money and there was no guarantee that anybody would show up, that anyone would buy a ticket. You know, we, you just don't know these things. And it's one thing if you're, say you're a famous rock and roll band right. and you tour all the time and you know if you schedule a, a concert, you're going to sell out the venue. Well, that's that's not me, right? I'm not, I'm not there. <laughs> not yet. And and, and, and and the truthfully, that's not even Ben Carson. I mean, no, no, no. it's no, not a guarantee that he's going to sell out. He speaks quite a bit, but I was trying to inspire a little entrepreneurship in him and his team. He always speaks for no charge. He never charges anything. And I wanted, Horrible idea. I wanted to charge. And we did. We, we sold tickets. And he resisted this. Like, this was a long debate we had back and forth. He didn't like that idea. Of so he was willing people. to sponsor you. And, and that mm-hmm. would have helped your, your end of the deal. Yes. But you were like, no, this is, this is, we need to actually have our audience show that they're interested. They got skin in the game. Yes. I mean, that's crucial. And that, to me, that's amazing. You're, you're on the cutting edge. I actually believe that uh, this kind of thing, aside from, you know, Ben Carson probably goes and talks to help raise funds, right, for mm-hmm. political candidates or something like that or some cause. And that happens all the time. But you're talking, no, no, no. I've got some value here that I'm delivering right now here on stage. You ought to pay for it. And to me, that's amazing. I think that will be more and more the case where, where someone who's offering intellectual content and can can sell it. I mean, that's a hard thing because there's a lot of people out there who are like, everyone should come listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. I know right. I know about the founders. I know about Aristotle. <laughs> come right. listen to me. And they're like, ah, big thumbs down. Well, and, and and we you know we presented this as uh, both both intellectual content, but also an experience, mm-hmm. a show. Mm-hmm. Like we really promoted this. This is going to be fun. Yeah. You're going to have. Even if you don't pay attention to the content, you're going to dig it. You're going to have a good time that night. And and I think we did a good job of pulling that off. But you're right. In this realm of ideas, that's kind of unusual. Everybody puts on big events. Uh, the, the, the groups that I used to work for, the Claremont Institute, Hillsdale College, they put on 
big events and they don't charge. They just invite people. And, and these are the people on the quote side of free markets, right? They're the they're on the side they're on the side of defending entrepreneurialism, but yes, but they we don't, don't want to exercise that way. Right. We don't actually want people to demonstrate by buying a ticket whether they actually value this this value this event or not. It, when you think of, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, comedy shows and concerts and things like this. You would never expect to go to a comedy show for free or a concert for free. You buy a ticket. And, and or you think of a, a, a sporting event. You look at the ticket prices. And if a ticket is $100 or $200, you might. You might go. If the tickets are five or $600, you might think, eh, that's, it's not worth that much. You make a judgment. And so tickets, really, it's the price. It's the, it's the value of trade and setting a price at something, it tells you so much information about whether people actually value this, whether they really want it or don't want it. And so I insisted that we're, we're, we're going to sell tickets, and we did, and uh, it, was, it was a success. And I think that I'm hoping that's the beginning for a new, a new kind of model for Ben Carson. Yeah, I definitely want to wish you the best in that. I, I admire you so much for actually taking that risk and, and leading the way for other people who might think, okay, I've got some content here. I have a way of delivering it. But you know, that, that's the thing is they've got to bring it. Uh, and that's what you do. You deliver. You deliver both the intellectual content and the fun part, not just by getting them liquored up with the vino, <laughs> but actually making it fun. That's and, right. And, and, and it's interesting that you, you know, you call it a society and, uh, you know, at some later point, I'd be interested in, in how you're encouraging that ongoing relationship with you and the people that are part of your team and, and the people who are joining up. Um, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, we, we started down the path a little bit with Ben Carson and, and I know you're at times like myself are critical of conservatives because they don't necessarily walk their talk. Right. Um, you know, th there's been a whole lot of people who've donated to to conservative causes, and and in many in many ways, we're on the conservative team uh, because they they do oftentimes represent an an admiration for reverence and a and a uh, uh, fidelity to the founders and to free markets. Mm -hmm. But but as I said, they sometimes don't walk their talk, and so you can be a critic of, of quote conservatives. Um, and is this part of that? You know, are are you are you wanting to set it up, set up your stage to be, to educate people about, well, here is, here's the way the public discourse has gone between quote left and right, but here's some alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. To, to a large extent. Um, and here, I think there's sort of looking back at the story of, of conservatism is might, might be kind of helpful. I, I date the emergence of the modern conservative movement to the period of the 1940s, mid-1940s to mid-1950s. That's when it really emerges. Um, right at the tail end of World War II, as, as the world is just recoiling from this, this devastation that was unlike, I mean, it was unlike anything anybody had ever seen. And it was all done in the name of centralized scientific planning. It, it, it wasn't done in the name of we're, we're barbarians and savages. They said, no, no, we're, we're scientists and lawyers and accountants and doctors, and we're going to manage your life. We're going to manage entire nations. We're going to manage the world scientifically. And we end up having this, this horrific global conflict. 
And some economic minds, um, like a, a, a von Mises, uh, his student, uh, Friedrich Hayek, they start pushing back in their own ways. They start writing essays and, and, and books saying, this is, there's something going on here that's disastrous, that, that, that's terrible. We're losing sight. We have forgotten the importance of, of liberty. Um, in the United States, uh, you know, in just a few years, 1953, 54, 55, several things happened. A guy named Russell Kirk um, writes a book that I think it's far from a, a perfect book, but it was certainly an influential book, and it was titled The Conservative Mind. And, and, and here it's useful to remind people that period, the 1950s, this is, I mean, this is long after, right? Woodrow Wilson had already been elected twice, served twice, then died. Then Franklin Roosevelt, right, had been elected four times and died. The world had become enamored with this notion of progress, that everything is progressive, everything is getting better. So this idea of conserving something that's old, this was quite, this was quite um, unusual. These, this was an outlier sort of concept, the conservative, as something admirable. That was Kirk's whole message in his book. There is something praiseworthy. There's something good about conserving old ideas, old traditions, old ways of life. Um, a guy named Bill Baruti, William Baruti, took an organization that it already existed. It was called the American Enterprise Institute, and he really expanded it to a national scale. It was a national think tank uh, focusing on free markets and how central planning uh, and collectivist policies disrupts and leads to all kinds of terrible consequences. Uh, and then and then most famously, probably, as uh, Bill Buckley Jr. founds National Review Magazine. So that all happens in the mid-1950s, uh, seven decades ago. And if you step back and, and just ask the simple question, well, over the last seven decades... Has the conservative movement been successful? Has it achieved its own goals? It talks about restoring constitutional government and restoring, you know, morality to our lives and 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 the rule of law and property rights and all these all these concepts that you and I agree with and most of our listeners probably agree with. Have they done it? Have they achieved it? And the answer is no. Not only have they not achieved it, things have gotten worse. Things are worse now today. We, we are far more progressive. We're far more collectivist. We're, I, I'm going to speak frankly here. We're far more fascist and socialist and communist today than we were in the 1950s. There was more freedom in the 1950s. So what you're saying here, Tom, is these conservatives were concerned in the 1940s and 50s about the, the progressive movement and the expansion of the state, and they got all this energy and started raising money and yep. saying, wait, wait, we, we got to stop this. We have to, we have to reverse course here, and they're an utter failure. Utter failure, utter failure. And, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is simply they're at a great disadvantage. They are, because fascists and socialists, and, and we can talk about these distinctions if— if, if our listeners are, are interested in that, those kinds of collectivists, they sell lies. And it is hard to compete with lies. When, when someone is out there saying, I'm going to give you free stuff and I'm going to protect you from every danger imaginable, re real and imaginary, I'm going to protect you from everything. 
I and the government, I'm like your parent and you're my child and I'm going to provide for you and keep you safe. That's really hard to compete with out there in the arena of ideas and political movements. And then you add to that the fact that most of the most influential conservative minds didn't actually, they either didn't understand the principles of the founding or worse, they did understand the principles of the founding and they openly rejected them. And and so- Yeah, that, 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 that's my, I mean, I, I think you make a really good point about the lies that are told, but, but there's, I mean, people are not generally stupid. I mean, you can have a culture that, that you know, goes off the rails. Uh, we've seen that way too many times, but people are not generally stupid. And it, it it's not those lies that they're buying into. They maybe want to buy into the lies in the first place, but I think it's the latter. It's it's the, the, the conservatives really didn't understand the founding. And, 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 and you know, that's the thing is they are, they are conserving tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And tradition from the old world even so. I mean, they didn't realize how the American founding was a radical new idea, right? The idea right. of saying, no, each individual person has a right to their own life, their property, their pursuit of happiness. That's a radical idea. That's not, you can't say I'm a conservative and I'm for that in world history. Now, that that's the kind of weird thing about the American conservatives because you know they're, they're patriots and they say we should have free markets and we should have tradition but they can't extract and say, what is the essence of the founding, right? Well, it's interesting. The great scholar of political philosophy, Leo Strauss, who was, who was my teacher, Harry Jaffa, that was his teacher. And Strauss used to, he would chuckle. He'd make this little sort of funny observation in class that the most, and he, this is in the 1950s and 1960s, he would say the most conservative group in America is the Daughters of the American Revolution. And he found that funny because it's the daughters of the American Revolution, right? This is a group organized to celebrate a a revolution, and revolution is the opposite of conservatism, right? Revolution means you're you're blowing things up, and you are you are instituting, you know, what's the old uh, you know Latin motto? A new order of the ages. We we are those revolutionaries got rid of many many things, including an established church. Uh, a king, titles of nobility, right? They said, none of this here in, in America. We're going to have a self-governing constitutional republic. And so it really raises this question, what does that term conservative mean? Uh, un- unfortunately, there's been no general agreement over all these decades of the conservative movement about what conservatism means. Um, there are people like you and me, we're out here, we're suggesting an answer. We're saying if, what, it, what it means to be a conservative in the best sense of the word is to be devoted to those radical revolutionary principles of the American founding. But there is an entire wing of the conservative movement. They call themselves paleoconservatives. Paleo is a, a Latin root that just means old. It means old-fashioned, con- conserving what is old. Um uh, the, the guy that I mentioned before, Russell Kirk, he's, he's one of the icons in that realm. And they find themselves in, they get in real intellectual pickles because when they say, well, we want to conserve what is old and traditional, it, it raises questions like, well, slavery is old and traditional. Um, 
short lifespans and diseases are that's old and traditional right poverty people living in nasty brutish and short (laughs) is old yes traditional (laughs) and 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 so they have what they've done is they've ignored a fundamental moral principle of right and wrong in exchange for this concept of what's old and what's traditional the truth is what's old and traditional contains some good things some admirable things but also contains a lot of ugliness. There's a lot of ugliness through through history, you know. And that that's the thing. Is I, I you know in, in our in our class that we that you and I both teach for, um, one of the main things I try to t- have people take away from the first day is about tradition, right? And I, I say reject tradition for tradition's sake, right? I mean, there are like you said, there's plenty of traditions that are good, but they're not good because they're traditional. It's been it's good because they've been time tested and they are rational and they. They work. Those traditions actually work. They 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 serve humanity, but there's a lot of them that are just totally irrational and should be rejected. If the, if it's just based on tradition's sake, we should we should uh, reject it. And that that's partly our our premise is to get people to think and think about in fundamental ideas. Well, and then you know, so we're sort of talking about um, at the movement level here. This is movement conservative, meaning meaning ordinary citizens who are they call themselves conservative. And so they start reaching for books and magazines and journals to help guide their thinking. Uh, when you go up to the higher sort of intellectual level, and this is especially true in the realm of conservative jurisprudence, so conservative constitutionalists, um, and I'm thinking about people like the former Chief Justice William Rehnquist, uh, who was one of the founders of the Federalist Society, his colleague Antonin Scalia, who's, who's an icon on, on, on the Supreme Court. These kinds of serious conservative thinkers. Um, Robert Bork is another one. Robert Bork, of course, Robert Bork is the only jurist I know who inspired a new entry in the dictionary. There's now a word, it's a verb, right? To be Bork. To be Bork. <laughs> and, and that's when there was this very ugly fight in the Senate uh, after he was nominated to the Supreme Court. The, the Senate failed to confirm him be, because... Allegedly, he was too much of a conservative. He was, he was a proponent of originalism and original intent. He did say these things. He spoke this way. The challenge becomes clear when you start digging into, well, what did he understand originalism to mean? What did he think was the original intent of the Constitution and the founding in general? Uh, he wrote an important book titled Slouching Towards Gomorrah. And in that book... There are two chapters. Um, One is on the idea of equality, and the other is on the idea of liberty. And he traces them back to the Declaration of Independence, cites the Declaration, and he says those ideas of natural human equality and liberty enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, those are the source of all of our problems we have today. Those are the source, those, those fueled progressivism, those fueled radical egalitarianism and, and the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s and all these terrible things. And so his suggestion is ignore the founding. <laughs> Just get past the Declaration of Independence. Stop talking about get it. Get over those guys. Get over those, those things. Now, Mike, this is this is one of it's hard to exaggerate the stature of Robert Bork in the world of 
conservative intelligentsia, right? The, the intellectual, the thinkers, the authors, Robert Bork is one of their icons. If uh, there, there's a big national group called the Federal Society, and it, 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 it's mostly lawyers and judges who are conservative, who say that they, uh, they want originalism and original intent jurisprudence. And Robert Bork is one of their, their heroes, their, their, their icons. They put on entire conferences devoted to analyzing the writings and, and jurisprudence of Robert Bork. And I, I'm mentioning this because what you see is in, in Bork, one of these examples of prominent conservative intellectuals, they're not devoted to the principles of the founding, even though they they would call themselves originalists and they would call themselves conservatives. Uh, they actually reject the principles of the founding. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to to study this and to to engage with these ideas of of you know these people are supposedly the defenders of you know free markets of freedom freedom itself, uh, but do they have a coherent philosophy that holds up and you know unfortunately it's losing ground well and i would answer the question no they, they don't have a coherent philosophy um yeah another one i mentioned william rehnquist who is chief justice of the supreme court really presides over a a big swing in the supreme court um moving away from sort of william brennan-esque living constitutionalism and here's William Rehnquist comes along as chief justice, and he's openly celebrating originalism and original intent jurisprudence. And in an essay, William Rehnquist, and he wrote this as chief justice when he was chief justice, he said that the United States Constitution has provisions that protects individual liberty and property. And then he raises a question. He says, now, do individual liberty and property have any intrinsic moral worth or meaning? His answer is no. Those concepts became moral because a majority said they were moral. Now, I've pointed out many times, well, okay, what if you replaced individual liberty with slavery and a majority adopts that? Does that mean slavery becomes moral? And, And so you see just the utter vacuousness there, there is there is yeah there, it's a great term the intellectual and moral bankruptcy there is no philosophic foundation that they can draw from that they, that helps keep them consistent well it's amazing we've gone from uh robin williams and your background lincoln talking about to to the courts today we're covering a lot of ground here tom yes, we I, are i mean <laughs> this is good stuff um that makes me ask you about today's court, and I don't necessarily want to talk about uh, abortion or gun control or anything like that. Some of the some of the more pressing things that they've been dealing with, but more broadly, this idea of of do the do the justices on the Supreme Court do any of them have uh, uh, a philosophy that is congruent with the founding, not just originalism. And the reason I bring this up, because it's partly because you and I have had an ongoing conversation about the administrative state. Mm-hmm. And my belief is that it's possible uh, a couple of them on the court now actually get the danger of the administrative state and, and want to reverse some of the deferences that have happened over the course of the last several decades. Deferences meaning Congress deferring to the administrative state and the executive ABC alphabet soup agencies and so forth. But do any of the current uh, justices have 
the right kind of idea, the right kind of judicial philosophy that would enable them to begin to address this gargantuan administrative state that we have today? I'm going to say, as, as far as I know, o- only one, Clarence Thomas. And, and I'll say more about him in just a moment. But I also I want to point to a kind of a counterexample from Thomas. And it's the member of the current Supreme Court who is most famous for going after the administrative state, and that's Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh has this entire body of jurisprudence he has developed uh, as a district and appellate court judge on these questions. And uh, I was at a lunch. You might have been there. Uh, Were you at this lunch where it was one of Brett Kavanaugh's former clerks? Yeah, I think She gave a talk? I think so, yeah. So I went to that lunch, and it was a pretty small group of people. She, She did a nice job of just kind of summarizing his corpus of jurisprudence. She really wasn't making much of judge. She didn't say whether she agreed or disagreed. She was saying, here's here's what he's interested in. Here are the kind of arguments. And, and she was zeroing in on some of these big administrative case law precedents, um, like the Chevron case, the Auer case, it's A-E-U-R, it's the name of it. it, it all these cases set up what you were talking about, this deference where when there's, I mean, this is so ridiculous, Mike, when when there's a question about what a law means or what a regulation means, the court has carved out this position. It says, well, let's go ask the bureaucrats in the unelected bureaucrats in the unelected bureaucratic agency because they're the experts on, on these things. And, and Kavanaugh has Now, that goes back. back to the original premise you talked about. You've talked about eloquently in your courses on progressivism, this idea of saying, we have to rely on these experts. We need to have this this bureaucracy. Um, that's partly what's what's caused it all, right? We need to have the rule by this kind of authority. But isn't that some sort of just to put it simply, just sort of the going back to Plato's philosopher king? We need to have mm-hmm. the really bright guys because mm-hmm. we're too stupid to, to rule ourselves. Yes. So we need to have the the benevolent, you know, smart people run well, our lives. Well, we'll have the smart people. And we'll hope and pray that they're benevolent. We, <laughs> right. we got to kind of wait and see, right? So it's a gigantic problem. And um, I asked Brett Kavanaugh's former clerk a really straightforward question. I said, would Brett Kavanaugh ever declare an administrative agency, a, a bureaucratic office, to be unconstitutional? Meaning the whole thing. Just say, no, the, the Constitution doesn't grant Congress any power to delegate its own legislative power to some regulatory agency? Would he do that? And she laughed. She laughed. She said, no, no, no. Oh, hold on. No, no, no. Let's not get carried away. Right. Who's this guy? Crowder in the back. (laughs) And and she answered very thoughtfully. And she said, look, he's looking for ways to rein in, sort of tighten up things like that Chevron deference. He wants a little more oversight. He's not going to go declare the Environmental Protection Agency itself to be unconstitutional. That's not going to happen. And 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 the only I, I'm actually skeptical right now that Thomas or Gorsuch would either. Although you know you've seen little flares of optimism once yeah. in a while. You know it's interesting because I've been teaching for years, 
this whole problem of the administrative state and the, uh, you know, the, I call it the problem of the ABC alphabet soup agencies and, and the czars. And, you know, where did all these people come from? You know, right. We've got 15 cabinet members and, and we've got, you know, a hundred some czars in charge yep. of this or that. And, and then they all have their own bureaucratic budgets and no one knows and no one, no one understands what they're supposed to regulate until you're in their crosshairs. Uh, but you recommended to me a gem of a book. I don't know if you remember this, but this this book called "Is Administrative Law Unlawful" oh, by, by Phil Phil Hamburg. Hamburger, yeah. And, and yeah. that that thing is fantastic. Yeah. It's got, he's got all kinds of examples, including going back to the history of uh, he uses the term the prerogative. Yes, he does. You know that we don't use that today, but he's he's saying yeah, it's the exact that's same. A, that, that's a term from medieval kings. The prerogative of the king. <laughs> the prerogative of the king. And that's what this administrative state is all about. He also in in that book, and I do I highly recommend it. it, it it's kind of a, a hefty book, but it's it really is a gem. He shows in there he he takes up the very concept of regulation. What is a regulation? Where does this come from? Can it be legitimate? And what he demonstrates, and it, to be clear, he distinguishes between. He says now there are government <clears throat> organizations. Now they do have to issue internal regulations so for example telling employees what time to show up to work right and here's how we're going to run our office but those are internal to the office the real problem is when these agencies issue regulations that are binding on us we're citizens as if these are laws they're not laws and he shows that there is a model for this and it's the medieval practice of kings issuing edicts which is they would Issue an edict, and there it is, and that's binding on you. Even though you didn't vote for the king, you didn't vote for the everyone in the government. It's it's completely illegitimate, is what he. Is and, what he and, and we've seen an explosion of that. And this is you know nonpartisan. I mean, you certainly we're seeing it with Biden today. I mean, the latest uh, sure. by by presidential edict, he's erasing student debt. <laughs> You know, and maybe calling that disinflationary or we fighting inflation, right. right? But we saw that with Trump. We've seen that with you know virtually every president for the last fifty years, yep. basically saying you know I'm going to use this executive power to do this or that, uh, and work through my agencies. But the, it's fascinating to me that that it's it's that whole idea of prerogative when the the, the kings were supposed to work through Parliament, but then said they're not doing what I want them to do, so. Here's what here's what it's going to be. Just and like call, just like what, what did Obama say? I I've got a pen and a and a phone. That's right. So that's right. So if the legislative the branch won't do what I want them to do, I'm, I, I'm going to get someone. the people's work done. And th- th- and that's the thing is they they sell it that way, right? I'm getting things done for the people. Yep. And it's amazing to me that you know you and I uh, have consistently said to people, you know, you should be against all regulations. And we have you know supposed conservative free market people who are shocked by that. You know. What do you mean? Get rid of regulations? We right. got to have we got to have some order. Sometimes actually terrified that scares them to think about this, and and, and the truth is, I want to make this point as, as clear as we can make it: a regulation is not law. It's not a law. It shouldn't be treated as law. It shouldn't be enforced as law. It's not a law. In fact, it's it's actually in one sense the opposite. It, it undermines the rule of law, right? Yes, it does. And that's what we're seeing. You know, the slow erosion and you know you, you could get carried away with this and 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 you know talk about how the moral fabric of the country is disintegrating and and it is in my view it's not happening overnight but that is it's the process of actually people not understanding the purpose of the law 
And when you have this, this kind of massive regulatory welfare state that no one really knows how to hold accountable or then you, you erode the whole idea of self-government and therefore it ends up being the opposite of truly a a civilized world. You're absolutely right. In in the literature of the founding, the political science of the American founding and, and, and the preceding European continental political philosophy from which the founders drew, one of the great problems to be solved, one of the great evils in government is arbitrariness. The founders are very clear. They said, you know, even a even a bad law, even an unjust law that is stable, is better. It's preferred over arbitrariness when regulations and rules are changing all the time. You can't because with a with a bad law that's stable, you can at least plan for it. You know what it is. You can you can figure out how to hedge right to get around that bad law. But when the laws are changing all the time. You're really just at the mercy of of the bureaucratic class. Um, And so, you know, this raises the question, what do we do about this? I've come up with several practical steps. I mean, what would be wonderful? This is just a pipe dream. I I would love it if a Supreme Court started striking down independent regulatory agencies and declaring them unconstitutional. That would be wonderful. Um, Another thing that could happen is Congress, a majority of Congress could pass a law and actually repeal and abolish individual regulatory agencies. Now, I don't think those things are, they're not at all likely to happen in the near future. Here are some things that actually could happen. Imagine a president who brings great public attention to the corruption and waste and and injustice of these regulatory agencies, maybe has high profile interviews with the heads of these things and is just talking about how many business owners do you harass and shut down and write and all these things? And here are some practical steps we could take. One is um, Congress could greatly reduce the funding of these agencies and say, okay, the agency is still going to exist because you American people think you need it, but we're going we're to cut all their budgets in half or more. Another thing that they could do is they could, with one piece of paper, they could take away the power of issuing regulations from all of them. And say we're we're still going to have uh, we're still going to have the labor board and we're going to have the Department of Transportation and we're going to have the EPA we're going to have all these things, but they basically become think tanks. They can research, and if they find some problem that they think requires action, they are welcome to walk over to Congress or walk over to the White House and ask an elected official to do something. But as unelected bureaucrats, they wouldn't actually have the power of regulation. Even if we could take a few steps like that, it would be a it would be a tremendous step in the right direction. Absolutely, but that requires a whole different cultural yes. movement, right? That, yep. that means the American people have to actually become citizens yes. <laughs> instead of serfs or or whatever you want to want to call them right now. I mean, there's there is an opportunity right now. Uh, we just had it under COVID. I mean, that 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 whole thing with the CDC and the FDA and so forth that would have been the perfect role for them yep. to say. You know, we're making some observations about what's going on with this this uh, virus, and we, we recommend Congress you do something versus having that kind of authority and power, and in a sense, dictatorial power from from that agency. And, and here's you know one of the challenges, and this problem, you know, we're calling it the administrative state. Sometimes in 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 more informal situations, we'll call it the swamp. 
it goes. It you have runs, a book about it, that, it, don't you? I, I do. I wrote a. Uh, it's a satirical book on on the swamp. It runs up and down the levels of government. I mean, it's not just at the federal government; it's at the state and county and municipal levels as well. And you saw this during during COVID. Some of the worst offenders, the worst parts of the administrative state, were at the local levels. Like here in Colorado, we have we have a thing called the Tri County Health Department. I think it's called a department. And they were just issuing these 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 arbitrary, groundless commands and edicts, uh, and and they were sending in effectively stormtroopers to business owners who who wouldn't comply, and they're shutting down businesses. And here's our challenge, Mike: so many of our fellow citizens right now, when something an agency like the Tri County Health Department issues some obnoxious, unjust, irrational regulation. What citizens tend to object to is the injustice and the irrationality of that one regulation rather than the whole organization. And, and, and what we need to do is encourage them, step back and, and ask the question, who the hell are these people in this organization to have any authority over whether I open my business or not? Yeah, that, that would require people thinking in principles, right? Yes. Instead of just this one instance of... Yes. Like you said, an injustice versus saying, "Wait, what's the rationale for this whole, this whole uh, process?" And going back to Hamburger, he uses the phrase "due process versus inquisitorial process," <laughs> and, and yeah. you, you know, from Tri County all the way up to executive fiat orders. That and you know, whether it's Supreme Court justice hearings or whatever Congress is doing hearings about, mm-hmm. that feels like inquisition is happening mm-hmm. versus you know, they're actually being something that most. Americans can understand and relate to as due process. What one of the things I show in my you mentioned my my book it's it's titled Save the Swamp. Again, it's it's a work of satire. Uh, I'm sort of giving advice to the bureaucratic class how best to abuse and misuse their powers. I point out in there that regulations turn the burden of of proof totally upside down. When you're talking about laws, and and this is really true for both criminal law and civil law, in in both situations, if you're accused of breaking the criminal law, the burden is on the government. They have to come prove that you actually did violate this criminal law. If someone sues you in the civil law, well, if I sue you, I, I have to demonstrate that you violated the contract or caused me harm or whatever it is I'm alleging. You don't really have to do anything. The burden is on me. But in the case of regulations, through the process of compliance, we turn the, the presumption is that you must be guilty unless and until you demonstrate that you're not guilty. And you have to demonstrate your innocence over and over in this process of compliance. And, and the moment you fail to comply, the moment you don't turn in the right papers to the right bureaucrats, it instantly triggers a verdict of you're guilty. You didn't submit, you didn't comply. And, and talk about and we're going to punish an, you. And an inversion. I mean a complete turning on its head. Mm-hmm. What what I think is and, and you're the you're the uh you're much more of a scholar than I am on this. But it, it seems like and and I, and I say this all the time, so hopefully you would you concur you know, that it's mostly an American uh institution to say you are innocent until you're guilty. Right. I mean, that, until that, you're that, proven that, guilty. Yeah. Until you're yeah. proven guilty. You know, I know they're they're. It's not that clean. We can't you know say the Americans have all the credit for for that that whole idea because you know that that came out of the Enlightenment and and lots of 
legal traditions that were growing in terms of process and civility and understanding uh, the role of government, the role of the law. Mm-hmm. But it is really, truly an American institution to say, no, whoever you are, if you're accused, you're innocent. Right. Under the, the law, state, the law, the law the presumes you're innocent. That proof. That's right. And, and all of regulatory law, all of, all of regulations, the administrative state is turning that on its head. And again, that undermines the law itself. You're in the financial services industry. You're in one of the most heavily regulated industries. If suppose, well, we don't have to suppose, we know this. You, you run your business very well. You treat uh, colleagues and customers, right, with, with great care, great respect. You provide great value to them. That's why they come back to you. You, you. you have this great relationship going on. So suppose you continue doing all that, and the only thing you change is you don't fill out the compliance forms and send them in. You just That's the one thing you change. What happens? Well, you lose your license, and then suppose you ignore that, and you just keep offering financial advice and providing the value and service, right? And, and, and all these agreements are voluntary and everything. Everybody's happy Except the bureaucrats, they're not happy because they told you, damn it, Mike, we suspended your license and you still kept, you know, engaging in in business. At some point, someone with a gun is going to come pointing at you and either shoot you or drag you to jail. Um, Even though you've hurt nobody, the only thing you did is you didn't fill out your compliance forms. Didn't comply. Yeah, I won't talk more about my industry so much, but I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and this is part of the challenge that we have, part of the problem that we have, part of the opportunity that we have to, to actually reignite that, that idea of self-government. And you know, what better time period to actually have that happen right now where people are, most Americans realize that we have this massive debt problem and it's getting worse. They don't see the consequences, and but they know that, that you know this can't go on forever. Um, and so that brings me to the whole issue of, you know, the only way to get out of this problem right now is through massive growth, massive innovation, massive growth, massive wealth production. Um, now we're we're living off of a legacy, and there still are pockets. There are certainly pockets in our economy that are thriving. Um, and doing well. But if people care about the future of this country, if they care about the future for their children and grandchildren, their legacy, and and to have it go on, we have to actually solve this issue of, of the massive debts that we've created. And the only way we can have that happen is to ha- to unleash the entrepreneurial spirit. And that means to to greatly reduce or eliminate this massive regulatory state. That's right, and and quit the quit the spending. You know, you have to if you if you're digging a hole, you have to quit digging. You know, if you want out, you have to quit digging. And and that is one of the things that I'm most excited about is actually seeing people get some understanding of what it takes to create wealth. And you know, there have been a few. Um, uh, Calvin Coolidge understood this connection. Uh, Ronald Reagan understood this connection. He he under, he did understand this very well. That if you one of the beautiful things about wealth creation is that it doesn't require any um, hand-holding. Or, I don't have to do anything for you for you to create wealth. I just need to stay out of your way. I just need to like not steal from you and, and, and not put you in chains, not handcuff you, right? And, and if you are free and you're secure, 
You're, you're, you're relatively safe in your property. Whether your property is great or, or humble, it doesn't matter. If you're safe in your property, your natural incentive, you want to live and you want to live well, and you, you, this is one of the most natural things in the world, you start looking around at the people around you and asking the question, what do they need? What do they value? And how can I produce something they value? How can I provide, deliver something, that, whether it's a service or a product or anything else? And when you do that, when you, I mean, you, you, you're the great teacher of this idea of wealth creation, right? When, when you do something other people value. One of the things I love about wealth creation is that it requires that, I think human beings, all human beings have this strong narcissistic streak in them. And they, we human beings tend to love ourselves and love thinking about ourselves and focusing ourselves. But wealth creation is fascinating because it connects our own self-interest. Now, of course, I, I would like to earn more money and, and, and have more things and live a better life. And wealth creation requires that for me to serve my own interests, I have to pay attention to other people. What is it they value? It doesn't really matter what I value. It matters what do they, what are they willing to buy? What are they willing to trade for? And, and how can I, I produce that? And when that happens, it is amazing of how much wealth, how much value free people can create when they're free. But you put your finger right, right on the core problem, and that is we're not very free. We're surrounded with restrictions, regulations, threats, burdens, disincentives. And, and, and so we need to clean out, gut, get rid of that regulatory administrative state. And what we will see, just, just like we did in the, there was another period of time in the middle part of the 18th century when relative to the rest of history, there was great protection for private property and very little obstacles or restraints or restrictions. And we saw the greatest explosion of wealth creation in all of history. Like ordinary people. Not only wealth creation, but but of productivity and innovation. You know, the, yes. All, all the, the life-enhancing things that came out of that time period. Now, again, people don't understand that history. Um, and and to, to the extent they do, they go back and say, well, wait, wasn't that the time period of... Uh, robber barons. They have a mistaken understanding of what history is. And they go back before that and they talk about slavery. They don't realize that the point at which we actually did overcome the slavery problem, and again, that was, it wasn't like the Civil War solved everything, Lincoln solved everything immediately. But but you said explicitly, no, we, we're going to be consistent with our declaration that all men are created equal mm -hmm. and have a right to their life, liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness. All people do. Um, you had this, as you say, a massive explosion of wealth production across the board. I want to I want to put a little edge on that and give a, give a one particular example. The Civil War ends in 1865, and there is a kind of exodus out of the South. Many black people who are newly liberated, newly freed, if they have the means, if they can leave, many of them do for for obvious reasons. They want to get away from living with these people who used to enslave them, and. There is a migration in the late 1800s and very early 1900s to Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places. A bunch of freed black Americans moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and again, you know, we, we, these things are never perfect. They're never utopias. Just relative to the rest of history, 
those black Americans in Tulsa, Oklahoma were, were pretty protected by law um, in their property. T- terrorist organizations like the Democrats created this, this Ku Klux Klan and other groups like that. They hadn't gotten there. They, they did not have a big presence in Tulsa. And as a result, these free black Americans in Tulsa, uh, they start creating businesses, they open restaurants, they build hotels, they start banks, uh, clothing stores. I mean, Tulsa became known, its nickname became known as uh, Black Wall Street because there was so much economic activity and productivity and, and growth. It was absolutely amazing. And this is before affirmative action. This is, this is before, before the civil action. rights. Like, this, this is before, before FDR was elected. This is actually during Jim Crow, right? I mean, this yeah. is in the South. Yeah. This, is, this is actually during that time period. Yeah. But they found a place where they could pre- pretty much be left alone. Yeah. They were insulted. There, there was racism. racism. People were saying ugly things. But if, if you were a black man or a black woman, you, you could go open a restaurant. You could go, oh, you could go build a hotel. And they did. And, and so it's just this amazing example um, you know, here's here's one of these key takeaways. I would love for people to, to remember this. The solution to the problem of poverty is not a government program. The solution to the problem of poverty is wealth creation. A- and the conditions in which you see wealth creation is a condition where people are secure in their property rights, in their liberty, and they're free to do with what is rightfully their own, their own labor, their own capital, do with it whatever you want to do. They find productive uses Absolutely. for their liberty and their capital. And and the thing is that the, the economic profession is is beginning to recognize this this whole idea of freedom being a requirement for production, and it, and it being that that the human mind is is the cause of wealth production, versus this legacy of the labor theory of value. You know, it's the work that, that that goes into something, the physical work that goes into something that's creating value. Now people are, are recognizing this idea, but not nearly as much as they should. And and it and it and it's a, it's slow to take a hold and, and for people to see the implications of oh if it is the mind truly the mind that's the creator of wealth, then we can't have these all these inhibitions or these disincentives or these distortions of how how minds get to work and interact with each other and trade with each other. It's true, and you know here, here's the other thing: not only do free minds, free people create wealth and 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 they solve problems part of their wealth creation is they look around and hey people have problems one one person is hungry and doesn't have food and someone else needs a house and someone else has some you know technological problem they can't figure out how to solve and maybe you have a solution not only do they create wealth and 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 increase their prosperity and improve their their way of living the alternative these government programs and regulations and and subsidies and and everything that comes with it they fail to deliver if they actually delivered what they said they were going to deliver then it might be worth considering it right if they if they said hey we'll give you free food and free housing and, and they delivered all that well you might have to sit back and think well hey they, they are giving us lots of good stuff but they Utterly, consistently failures. fail to deliver the very things that they're going to fail. Uh, when when FDR was president, he was first elected in 1932. He was elected four times in, in a row. Uh, his, uh, his secretary of the Treasury, uh, Morgenthau, was testifying in Congress. This is nine years later. Nine years had gone by. And they had had 
all these gigantic federal programs and created these civilian workforces, you, you name it. And he says, look, we have spent billions of dollars and we have more unemployed people today than when Mr. Roosevelt got elected. We've utterly failed because that chronic unemployment was one of the leading signs of the depression, right? When you have large numbers of people unemployed and they can't feed themselves, they can't make their house payments, that's a huge problem. And all these government programs did not lead to more people working, more people being employed. It led to more people being unemployed. Mm. And, And so the answer to all this is, Get rid of the reg- the regulatory restrictions. Get rid of the subsidies that always end up subsidizing bad behavior, inefficiencies, and let free people solve problems on their own. They will figure out the most efficient and, and very often the most benevolent way of, of doing it. Uh, one of the things I love to point out, prior to, prior to Roosevelt, prior to the New Deal in the 1930s, the United States had one of the most effective and kind personal assistance programs in the history of the world. And there were a couple basic features to it. It tended to be local. People helped people who lived close to them in their communities. So they could, they could tell the difference between someone who genuinely needed help, say a, a flood washed away their house or burned down in a fire or whatever, Versus the lazy bum who just didn't want to work. They could tell the difference. And because it was personal and it was voluntary, people chose to help other people, it meant the people who received the help were appreciative. They were were worried they were going to starve or be left out to freeze. And if someone said, no, you can come stay in my house. Until you get your house That's rebuilt. That's interesting. They, they have the gratitude. The gratitude. Versus the resentfulness yeah. on, the, on, the, on the flip side. Yes. You know, we could go on all day about this. And of course, you know, the, the, all these government programs have the exact opposite of what their intended consequences are. But, but the bigger point is that they're immoral in the first place. I mean, they, they yes. don't work, but they don't work because they're immoral. They're mm-hmm. wrong. They're they, wrong. They violate people's rights. And, and you and I know that. And we, we talk about it all the time. And hopefully, Hopefully, there's a few people out there listening to us. I, Tom, uh, I, I got to wrap up here. I, you know, the thing is, you and I could go on all night, <laughs> and I got to have you back because um, this is uh, one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've uh, been a part of. Just uh, talking to you and, and finally uh, getting you in here. You know, like you said, we we talk in class and we talk with each other, but it's it's interesting just to, to kind of get in this circumstance. You know. Maybe we'll talk about movie reviews next time, The Big Lebowski. Sure. <laughs> but but uh, the good I, news, Mike, is there's a lot more where this comes from. <laughs> that's right. I really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of this, and and we'll do it again soon. This is Mike Williams and Dr. Tom Crownwitter. Thank you again for being here with the Defenders of Capitalism podcast. Please listen to us, like us on the social media, share us if you found this interesting and entertaining, and you had to with Dr. Tom here. Uh, please share it with your friends and, and uh, join, the, join the cause of freedom. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mike.